When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impelled them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same ob object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. That is the opening paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. This document was signed by 56 men, July 4th, 1776. Hopefully you can hear in the beautifully constructed language of those opening paragraphs that they were laying out based on first principles their right and their necessity to separate themselves from Britain. At that point in history, the colonies were a source of revenue for the crown. And the crown was in a pretty tight spot because it had just wrapped up its seven years war with France and that war had drained its coffers. They looked at the new world as a source of revenue. The colonialists had decided that they'd had enough and they were willing to go to war and put their lives and fortunes in jeopardy in order to institute their independence from the crown. There were 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence and I would like to just take a look at the Johns for this episode. First, just a brief synopsis of the Declaration for those who may not have had to study civics in school. At the time of the Declaration, there were 13 colonies here in America. They were comprised of people who found it more desirable to leave England and subject themselves to the unknown in America than to continue to live under the taxation and rule of the British Crown. 
The colonies at that point had already established governing bodies. They had a Congress. They had well-established trade. They were importing and exporting products. As a prelude to them deciding to write the Declaration, British Parliament had passed the Stamp Act, which taxed paper, stamps, of course. It, it, it just, it's inconceivable to me what they tried to do with the Stamp Act. But part of the revenue from that Stamp Act, they sold it as being needed to maintain several regiments of British soldiers in North America whose purpose was to maintain peace between Native Americans and the colonists. Now, there were 56 signers, like I mentioned earlier, and they took a big risk putting their names on that document. Let's take a look at just the Johns that signed the Declaration. Just the Johns consist of John Adams, John Hancock, John Witherspoon, and John Morton. Now, these were not young men when they signed the Declaration. Some were in their 30s, some were in their 40s, some were even older. They were not young, roustabout rebels trying to make a name for themselves by signing some Declaration of Independence from Britain just to make themselves famous. They had nothing to gain from putting their name on that document. As a matter of fact, they had much to lose. They were part of Congress, they were part of business. They had, most of these had very thriving businesses, fortunes. And depending on Britain's reaction to that declaration, they realized at that time that the result could be war and that their businesses could go up in smoke. But they stood up or sat down and signed the document. I also learned something during the course of the research I've done so far about this, that there was no official signing of the declaration like you see in that famous image, Benjamin Franklin and John Hancock front and center signing the, the declaration. If I'm summarizing this correctly, sort of a draft copy went out. Everybody approved of it. And later on then, a piece of parchment was sent out around and everybody signed the parchment. And then at some point, the parchment was printed with the declaration, sort of like Photoshopped onto it essentially with the way printing technology worked back then. Found that interesting. Folks, I'm not a historian. I'm not a Dan Carlin. And if you've never heard of Dan Carlin and you have an interest in history, please, please, please go look him up online. He has a great cadence. He's very knowledgeable. His topics are fantastic, well-reasoned, and he spends a lot of time and energy trying to get everything perfect with his presentations. Having said that, let's jump into John Adams. And yes, for those of you who may have an alcoholic beverage every once in a while that consists of hops, John Adams is in the same family as Samuel Adams, which has grown in popularity over the years, and I'm glad to see it. He was born in Braintree, Massachusetts, which we know these days as Quincy, Massachusetts, 
on October 30th, 1735. His parents were on the Mayflower. He was the oldest of three sons. His father was a farmer and a shoemaker who also served as a congressionalist deacon and an official in the local government there in Massachusetts. Now, he was born in Massachusetts, and that surprised me because when I think about the Founding Fathers, again, I'm, I'm correcting my memories. I'm correcting the version of history that has sort of nestled itself comfortably in my head. He did not come to America from Britain. He was born in Massachusetts. The Mayflower, which brought the original pilgrims over, landed on Plymouth Rock. We did not land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. November 11th, 1620. That was 115 years before John Adams was born. This is January 21st, 2023. That was roughly 288 years ago that he was born from today. So from John Adams' birth to today is only roughly about twice as long as the Pilgrim's Landing at Plymouth was till he was born. I found that kind of interesting. He graduated from Harvard College in 1755. There's something else that jumped out at me. Harvard College, 1755. Had no idea Harvard's been around that long. It was founded in 1636. It's the oldest institution of higher learning in the United States and among the most prestigious in the world. Still true. He married Abigail Smith in 1764. She was a minister's daughter from Massachusetts, and they had six children, of whom only four survived. He went on to become one of Boston's most prominent attorneys. I'm thinking maybe that means he was probably fairly affluent. To give his morality a bit of highlight, he represented the British soldiers who promulgated the Boston Massacre, which occurred in March 1770. If you're not too sure what's going on there, there were some colonialists who got a little bit rowdy. The British soldiers were there to maintain peace and order in the streets, and they opened fire on them. They killed five. He represented them in court. In 1783, John Jay, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin helped negotiate the Treaty of Paris, which officially ended the hostilities between America and Britain. He was elected as the first vice president under George Washington in 1789. He lived long enough to see his son, John Quincy Adams, become America's sixth president in 1824. By that point, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were among the last living signers of the Declaration of Independence. And they had a little bit of friendly rivalry between them. On July 4th, 1826, on the Declaration's 50th anniversary, the 90-year-old John Adams uttered his last words. Thomas Jefferson still survives. He died later that day, but what he didn't know was that earlier that very same day, Thomas Jefferson had also passed away. John Adams lived a long, prosperous, productive life.
he did not die some horrible death as a result of signing his Declaration of Independence. Have you ever been asked for your John Hancock? Did your face show a mix of surprise and confusion? Well, we're about to learn where that came from. If you look at the Declaration of Independence, at the top of the signature section, at the bottom of the document, very first signature, prominent, big, huge signature, is John Hancock's. Allegedly, he signed his name the way he did so that he could be sure that George III could read it. This eventually went on to become an eponym. Yes, I just learned that word myself for a signature. John Hancock was born in 1737 in Braintree, Massachusetts. His parents died when he was very young, leaving him orphaned and he went on to be adopted by a wealthy merchant uncle. His uncle's name was Thomas Hancock. He owned a business called the House of Hancock. And one of the things that the House of Hancock did was own a shipping company. They exported rum, whale oil, and fish from the colonies and imported manufactured goods from Britain. This exposure to John Han well, I'll come back to that. John graduated from Harvard at the age of 17. He went to work for his uncle's company, gained status, respect, trust, and was eventually sent on business trips to England one of which he happened to be on in 1760, and he got to witness the coronation of George III and engaged with some of the leading businessmen in London during this trip. In 1763, his uncle, Tom, Thomas Hancock, died, and John Hancock inherited what was said to be the greatest body of wealth in New England. Now, what I didn't say, what I didn't finish saying earlier was that now we know that John Hancock owns a company and shipping was part of that company's business. The taxing acts that Britain passed a little bit later directly affected John's business. They hit very close to home. So he definitely had a vested interest in the consequences of those acts and attempting to eliminate them from more being passed in the future. He eventually, maybe as a repercussion of his business, became very involved in revolutionary politics. And his sentiments were very early for the independence from Great Britain. He was elected to the Boston Assembly in 1766 and was a member of the Stamp Act Congress. I'm going to read directly from Wikipedia. After its victory in the Seven Years' War, the British Empire was deeply in debt. And you'll see this expanded on a little bit later, but here's a good summarization of, of what's going on that led up to the Declaration. 
looking for new sources of revenue the British Parliament sought for the first time to directly tax the colonies, beginning with the Sugar Act of 1764. The earlier Molasses Act of 1733, a tax on shipments from the West Indies, had produced hardly any revenue because it was widely bypassed by smuggling, which was seen as a victimless crime. Not only was there little social stigma attached to smuggling in the colonies, but in port cities where trade was the primary generator of wealth, smuggling enjoyed considerable community support, and it was even possible to obtain insurance against being caught. Colonial merchants developed an impressive repertoire of evasive maneuvers to conceal the origin, nationality, routes, and content of their illicit cargoes. This included the frequent use of fraudulent paperwork to make the cargo appear legal and authorized. And much to the frustration of the British authorities, when seizures did happen, local merchants were often able to use sympathetic provincial courts to reclaim confiscated goods and have their cases dismissed. For instance, Edward Randolph, the appointed head of customs in New England, brought 36 seizures to trial from 1680 to the end of 1682, and all but two of these were acquitted. Alternatively, merchants sometimes took matters into their own hands and stole illicit goods back while impounded. I guess you could tax a, you can tax a colonialist, but you can't make them pay. Now, John's company that he, he inherited, as I mentioned earlier, had some ships and kept them fairly busy doing all kinds of things. One of his ships, a sloop named Liberty, got wrapped up in some controversy in 1768. Allegedly, it had a shipment of wine on it. And most of the wine was removed from the ship before the customs officers at the port could take an inventory and calculate the fees and taxes to impose on the shipment. This resulted in some litigation that stretched out over months and then was suddenly dropped. To this day, historians still have not come to a consensus on whether or not John was doing some smuggling. May 24, 1775, he was unanimously elected president of the Continental Congress. He got married in 1775 in Fairfield, Connecticut. They had two children, neither of whom survived to adulthood. Hancock served in Congress through some of the darkest days of the Revolutionary War. The British drove Washington from New York and New Jersey in 1776, which prompted Congress to flee to Baltimore. Hancock and Congress returned to Philadelphia in March 1777, but then were compelled to flee again six months later when the British occupied Philadelphia. He was a prolific writer, fundraiser. He raised money, supplies, and troops for Washington's army. He chaired the Marine Committee and took pride in helping to create a small fleet of American frigates, including the USS Hancock, which was named in his honor. Hancock also had some aspirations of being not necessarily a soldier, but a leader, a general or a lieutenant or a colonel. He wanted to lead troops in the battle. And 
he bounced off of positions where he could have done so several times. And it seems that it left him a bit frustrated in that regard. Back in Boston in 1776, he was finally appointed as the senior major general of the Massachusetts militia. He didn't do very well, and he also did not directly lead the men. He counted on his underlings to actually do the real planning and fighting for him. Historian James Truslow Adams writes that Hancock's two chief resources were his money and his gout, the first always used to gain popularity and the second to prevent his losing it. Hancock, in his older years now, with failing health, was relegated to essentially being a figurehead governor. He died at home October 8th, 1793, at the age of 56. By order of acting governor Samuel Adams, who he ha had a bit of tension with over the course of their work together, ordered that the day of Hancock's burial be a state holiday. His lavish funeral was perhaps the grandest given to an American up till that time. Have you ever encountered somebody who was so well informed on a particular topic that it boggled your mind that there was that much information available for them to know to start with? I was working with some folks one time that happened to be welders and kicked a piece of steel. And one of them began to spout off what type of steel it was, what Rockwell hardness it had what its tensile strength was, what the chemical composition, how much nickel, how much iron, how much molybdenum. He knew everything about that piece of steel. There are people who can do this with whiskey. About the only whiskey I can drink is Crown. I don't know why but that's just the way it is. But there are folks who can sit there and sample some whiskey and tell you what type of barrel it was aged in, what what the composition of rye versus whatever else they put in it in, how much of it came from Canada and how much of it came from the United States. There are people who understand things at a very deep foundation They know it. They've studied it. They beat their head against it for a long time. And in doing so, they're able to present various elements of that topic or that knowledge in different lights until they get you to understand it. Or maybe you'll just never be capable of understanding it at the level that they do given that you haven't spent the time that they have absorbing it. But they can still put those words, those ideas on paper as elegantly as possible. And maybe after reading it 50 times, you might glean some distant understanding of what they're trying to convey. 
not because they're conveying it in a way that you can't understand it just that they understand it at such a level that it's it's impossible to obtain it attain it without dedicating yourself to it as they have our third john in this discovery podcast is named john witherspoon he was a scottish american presbyterian minister and he understood theology and philosophy at the level of expertise that I'm trying to convey here. He was the only active clergyman and the only college president to sign a declaration. Of the first three founding fathers that we've discussed here, the Wikipedia article for John Witherspoon is probably four times longer than that of the first two. And I'm going to be picking and choosing some of, of the actual Wikipedia article to read because the depth of what this man did and his influence on the early documents that this country was built on, built around the ideas from are they're beyond my comprehension honestly I'd have to spend a lot of time reading about this and thinking about this to really understand all these big words that you're about to hear truthfully he was born in Yester, Scotland as the eldest child of Reverend James Alexander Witherspoon and Anne Walker he was a staunch Protestant, a nationalist, and supporter of republicanism. Now, republicanism is a political ideology centered on citizenship in a state organized as a republic. And that's what the United States is, a democracy and a republic. It emphasizes the idea of self-rule and ranges from the rule of a representative minority or oligarchy to popular sovereignty. Consequently, consequently, he was opposed to the Roman Catholic legitimist Jacobite Rising of 45 through 46. I'm not going to get into the, who, the, who the Jacobites were. He became a Church of Scotland minister in 1745. Ten children with his wife, Elizabeth Montgomery, and five of them survived to adulthood. You'll notice, if you've been paying attention, that child mortality rates were very high early in this country's history we've come such a long way with medicine and science and technology where a majority of our children survived to adulthood that was not the case then he eventually went on to become president and head professor of Princeton University this occurred in 1768. At the age of 45, he became the sixth president of the college and started off, the school was in horrible states. It was in debt, had weak instruction, a paltry library collection, and he got to work as soon as he got there 
and built the school up to a good, competent start. Witherspoon personally taught courses in eloquence or Bell's letters. I have no idea what that is. Chronology and divinity. However, none was more important than moral philosophy. And I find this to be very interesting. Because you can have morality without having religion, so to speak. He was an advocate of natural law within a Christian and Republican cosmology. He considered moral philosophy vital for ministers, lawyers, and those holding position in government. He transformed Princeton, which was designed predominantly to train clergymen into a school that would equip the leaders of a new country, this country. These students included James Madison, Aaron Burr, Philip Freneau, William Bradford, and Hugh Henry Breckinridge. From among his students came 37 judges, three of whom became justices of the U.S. Supreme Court, 10 cabinet officers, 12 members of the Continental Congress, 28 U.S. senators, and 49 U.S. congressmen. We could stop right there. And he would have already left an indelible mark on the direction that this country went. And it's still going. But his story does not end there. Now, in spite of his moral philosophy instruction, he saw the growing centralization of government progressive ideology of colonial authorities and establishment of episcopacy authority as a threat to the liberty of the colonies. Now, all this is very interesting because I think you would probably picture a clergyman to be fairly meek, understated, quiet, unassuming, and not one to get involved with such a turbulent endeavor as establishing a government for a budding country. But it appears that John Witherspoon did not shy away from the challenges and rather assumed a burden that he could have chosen to ignore. He began writing sermons that explained his perspective. There was one that's fairly popular, it seems, called The Dominion of Providence Over the Passions of Men, which was very well published. He was eventually appointed the congressional chaplain. He voted to adopt the Virginia Resolution for Independence. He went on to serve in Congress. He served on over 100 committees, most notably the sitting committees, the Board of Peace, and the Committee on Public Correspondence or Common Affairs. He helped draft the Articles of Confederation. He fought against the flood of paper money and opposed the issuances of bonds without provision for their amortization. No business can be done, some say, because money is scarce, he wrote. Here we get into the meat of what I really wanted to convey about John Witherspoon, and I'm going to read this directly. 
at the College of New Jersey, Witherspoon revised the moral philosophy curriculum, strengthened the college's commitment to natural philosophy, and positioned Princeton in the larger transatlantic world of the Republic of Letters. He was a proponent of Christian values. His common sense approach to the public morality of civil magistrates was influenced by the ethics of Scottish philosophers Francis Hutchinson and Reed. In regard to civil magistrates, Witherspoon thus believed moral judgment should be pursued as a science. He held to old concepts from the Roman Republic of virtuous leadership by civil magistrates, but he also regularly recommended that his students read such modern philosophers as Machiavelli, Montesquieu, and David Hume, even though he disapproved of Hume's infidel stance on religion. Virtue, and this reached out when I read this, virtue, he argued, could be deduced through the development of the moral sense, an ethical compass instilled by God in all human beings and developed through religious education, or civil sociability. He saw morality as having two distinct components, spiritual and temporal. Civil government owed more to the latter than the former in Witherspoon's Presbyterian doctrine. Thus, public morality owed more to the natural moral laws of enlightenment than to revealed Christianity. That's something to stop and think about for folks who blindly follow a particular religious ideology, thinking that that ideology is a necessity for the continued civility of society. In his lectures on moral philosophy at Princeton, required of all juniors and seniors, Witherspoon argued for the revolutionary right of resistance and recommended checks and balances within government. These were revolutionary ideas at the time. But yet, checks and balances within government is part of our commonplace language these days. He made a profound impression on a student, James Madison, whose suggestions for the United States Constitution followed both Witherspoon's and Hume's ideas. What is the right of resistance? It's a nearly universally acknowledged human right. The right to resist, depending on how it is defined, can take the form of civil disobedience or armed resistance against a tyrannical government or foreign occupation, whether it also extends to non-tyrannical governments is disputed. Now here's a preacher advocating that the right to resist, which could be civil disobedience or armed resistance against a tyrannical government. I love the contradictions, the seeming contradictions. They're probably not contradictions, but like I was saying earlier, if you spend enough time thinking about something, you come to understand it at a very deep level. And if John Witherspoon's opinions carry any water, to him it made perfect sense that somebody could be virtuous and yet still act on the right to resistance, a right of resistance. Those seem to be opposing ideas, but maybe they're not. Wikipedia goes on to say that Witherspoon accepted the impossibility of maintaining public morality of virtue in the citizenry without an effective religion. 
In this sense, the temporal principles of morality required a religious component which derived its authority from the spiritual. Therefore, public religion was a vital necessity in maintaining the public morals. However, in this framework, non-Christian societies could have virtue, which by his definition could be found in natural law. Again, ideas that it's hard to hold in both hands at the same time, they seem to contradict each other. And this is something I need to spend some time thinking about because I've long held that living by some prescribed religious framework is good for society because society would not be capable of upholding common moral virtue without some sort of framework that people naturally tend to be chaotic, anarchistic, hedonistic. And without some moral guidelines, they would descend generation after generation into a black hole of self-satisfaction and a lack of care for their fellow man. That's a philosophical argument which I'm not capable of eloquently verbalizing. I'll leave it to smart people to do those kind of things. But Dr. Witherspoon had a profound effect on not only the Declaration of Independence, but on documents that came later at the state level and at the federal level. He influenced hopefully for many decades to come, a sort of moral foundation for the rights and the regulations and the rules that we live under today and that have birthed the most powerful, the most free country that we know of in modern history.